Welcome, and thank you for joining us in your podcast, brought to you by Choice to Set Groups. Here you can be a fly in the wall to hear some of the personal stories of professional athletes, public figures, and business owners. Relive their life's adversities with them, and see how living through their challenges helped them discover their authentic selves, ultimately creating a life that they couldn't imagine any differently. And now, here is your host, former athlete, current certified financial planner, and impact entrepreneur, Tim Liu. There's a saying that time waits for no one. While we may not know exactly when something is to happen, sometimes it's hard to ignore the unmistakable writing on the wall. In finance, there exists this impending event in which we will see the greatest amount of money ever change hands from one generation to the next. For so many reasons, this is something which deserves some conscious thought. The most obvious being that one day you might be the person responsible for looking after all the material possessions your parents spent their lives building. That's a lot for anyone to handle, let alone someone who might not have any degree of familiarity in finance. Considering both how the financial industry is regulated in Canada, as well as the regular conversations that I have with various 20 to 30 year olds, this doesn't at all instill confidence in me to know that their futures is without financial heartache. So let's talk about how your parents and grandparents began working with their advisor, how the landscape of advice is dramatically changing, as well as what you, a consumer, might be wise to know in advance in order to construct for yourself the value you associate with financial advice and the extent to which you might need to engage financial services. This episode of In Your Podcast has been made possible by the generous support of Mackie Real Estate. Contact them today to find out how they are putting more money in their client's pocket. Today, I'm joined by a person that many Canadians have seen on their TV screens over the years, including being a regular panelist on CBC's The National, CBC's Marketplace, uh, as well as being the host of Oprah's program, Million Dollar Neighborhood. His voice is one that probably elicits jealous envy amongst radio personalities and can be heard regularly on his own podcast called Mostly Money, Mostly Canadian. In addition to all of this, he's the founder of the financial planning software, Money Gaps. Welcome to the In Your Pocket podcast, soon to be minted, hopefully, Dr. Preet Banerjee. Oh man, that oh yeah, that's that's nerve wracking saying something like that because now I have to not only submit my thesis but also defend it, which I hope to do later this year. But thank you so much for having me on your show, Tim. And the other thing that I'll mention about that very nice introduction is you mentioned my voice, and that is very ironic because my last podcast guest was Peter Mansbridge, who is the voice. Right, it's very. Very intimidating talking to that guy, but uh, I that's the one podcast of my own that I listen to more than once because I just love the sound of his voice. So yeah, you've put me on too high of a pedestal, I'm afraid. Well, speaking about intimidation, if you can make it through this show, Preet, you can make it through anything. So I... <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> Just kidding. So I, I'm glad that you agreed to you know suffer through this chat with me. Uh, part of the reason why I asked you to hop on here is because you're you know 
you're not too far away from doing something very uh, prominent in the financial industry. Can you please provide a simple overview, if that's possible, of I guess your your dissertation to this point, you know, what you're looking to accomplish and basically the results of your findings? Sure. Yeah, I can cover most of that. Uh, so by way of background, I'm in the ninth inning of my DBA, which is a Doctor of Business Administration. And I was inspired to do that because of who is my primary supervisor now, Dr. Walid Hajazi at the Rotman School of Management. And we had done some, some events uh, together uh, because of our association with U of T. And over time, he said, you know, your book, Stop Overthinking Your Money, um, uses this concept of grading people on their financial lives. And you say, here's how you get an easy A. And he said, you know, you could maybe go a little bit deeper into this and actually come up with a framework for telling people how well they are doing. Mm -hmm. And that was the spark for, for the research. And so the research really is trying to grapple with the, the reality that, you know, the, the academic literature is dominated by measuring the value of financial advice in a very portfolio-centric context. So tons of papers talking about, you know, if you use an advisor or you don't, what is the rate of return on your portfolio? Do advisors make you diversify more? Do they lower the risk for the same level of returns that you get and so on and so forth? So very, uh, you know, quantitative analyses based on portfolio-centric considerations, which is great. However, contemporary wealth management in terms of, you know, what advice is actually being given to people has really changed a lot in the last slowly over the last 20 years, but wealth management now takes into account more than just managing a portfolio. Looking at things like cash flow, making sure that people are saving enough in the first place so that there is a portfolio to manage. When they start building up assets, you know, making sure that they have the proper insurance portfolio in place to protect and to have contingency plans. And so the, the Coles notes of how people should think about this is uh, costs matter, we know that, but you also have to take a look at what you are getting for those costs. So the low hanging fruit has been, you know, why use an advisor using expensive mutual funds when you could do it yourself? You know, you could save one, 2% per year and look how much that translates into. So that's a very logical argument. In reality, there's so much more to it than that. Um, you know, one of the innovations the industry has come up with is robo-advice. Uh, there are a lot of people that robo-advice is fantastic for. But if you have people who maybe aren't so good with the non-portfolio stuff of their life, then it could actually look relatively expensive. Because if you think about what a robo-advisor does, you basically go to them and say, hey, I've got X number of dollars that I want to put into an investment portfolio, do that. And so they'll take your money and they'll deploy it into a pretty good portfolio. But it's up to you to determine how much you should put in there. It's up to you to make sure that, hey, you don't have, you know, 30% interest rate debt on credit cards that maybe you should, you know, pay down instead of investing all into a portfolio. So if it's charging you, what, 75 basis points to give you, you know, asset allocation and portfolio tran transactions and executions, is that really cheap? I don't know. Right. But once you have that framework, you can start looking at questions like that. And, and similarly, you know, maybe some full service advisors are doing a fantastic job because they're 
you know, looking at multiple dimensions of wealth. And if you've got an advisor who is just doing what a robo advisor does, yeah, that's very expensive. So it's, I think it's going to open up a lot of questions about the value of advice and make it much more than just a one dimensional. Well, it's all about the costs. That's part mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a great, a great framework to provide everybody with because this is for all intents and purposes a non-financial podcast and something that i think a lot of people can generally pull from and you know dive into the weeds if that's something that they are curious in doing and this is exactly why i wanted to talk with you Firstly, you know, there's this event that media contributors and financial institutions alike have coined as being like the intergenerational wealth transfer mm-hmm. and the the onslaught of rabbit holes uh, of the cause and effect relationships pertaining to like the next generation's perception of financial advice. I know it's a banal thing to say, but let's begin with, you know, I guess starting at the start and working our way through how did our parents choose their advisor? Yeah, quite a, quite a bit different than current and next generations, that's for sure. Um, and there's a multitude of ways, but one way that is very popular is just someone you knew. Because, you know, depending on how old you are, we'll uh, give you some ideas to how old your parents are. But yeah. it used to be normal for people to do business at their front door. <laughs> it used to be normal for someone to knock on your door and say, Hey, I got an encyclopedia, a set of encyclopedias here. Do you want to buy it? Right. So, As a you millennial, know, if, that blows my mind. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, you know, if you have, I guess, maybe grandparents and they got a set of encyclopedias, it was because of a door to door salesperson. And that was a normal way of doing business. So, um, a lot of it was, you know, cold calling and the hustle um, of when it was almost 100% a commission based business. And the other way is through, um, you know, any new advisor to the industry, it was standard practice. The first thing you do before you even started learning about investing was write down 200 people that you know, because that's who you're going to approach. And, uh, and the thinking, I guess, was hopefully we'll get you trained in the next two weeks so that when you meet them, you've got something to say. So it wasn't a great way to uh, create professionalism in the industry, but this industry is born out of sales, right? So, and a lot of people end up changing advisors because their advisors uh, either washed out of the industry, they switched firms and you didn't want to go because that was the one way you could say, I don't really like how things are going in this relationship and kind of be passive aggressive about it. Yeah. But yeah, back in the old days, it was you know, it was very much human to human contact, which is very much not where the wor- way the world is going uh, in terms of financial advice. And so with that kind of like enduring sense of, I'm just trying to think in my mind, is that more laziness, contentment, or maybe just reluctance to change on, I guess, the client's behalf? You know, I think there's more to it than, than okay. just inertia. Okay. I think that for a lot of people, they based the, the the value they were getting out of their, out of those relationships based on whether or not they just liked the person as a person. Mm, okay. And in terms of their comp- competence, I don't know if that ranked as high on the list um, as maybe as it should. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you meet with someone 
and they're nice and they're polite and you have a good time while you're chatting, you're going to give them a lot of leeway, right? And um, as long as they show that they're trying, I think you feel, all right, well, I guess I'll keep letting them try. And so you may not know whether or not they're actually doing a great job in terms of, you know, financial planning advice or investment advice. You just know, well, I like this person. And so I don't know if that is the right framework to take when you're hiring a professional to help you manage your financial affairs. I I think it's tough for people to sort of separate, you know, the individual as a person, as a human being versus Mm -hmm. the, the value that you're getting from them. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. Now, pressing the fast forward button, I think that while so much has changed, when you really think about it, nothing has really changed. The message from, I guess, one generation to the next is, I guess, always really been, you know, save your money. And I think the dependent misunderstanding is that it's always been like, how do you do that prudently? I guess, how is this all notion changing now, if at all? Yeah, that's interesting. I think <clears throat> I think that there are some things that are actually changing a little bit. And that is uh, a function of incredibly low interest rates. Yeah. And so that's why societally you're seeing people borrow a lot more than they had in the past more freely. And that's kind of what is expected. You lower interest rates to to stimulate borrowing, and that's exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. At the same time, those interest rates also inform how much of a return you get on any money that's just saved. And there's a big mental leap for a lot of people between saving and investing. And when you think about it, we're not very precise in all of the words that we use as an industry when it comes to saving for retirement. To some people, that means, oh, saving and investing that money to make it grow at a rate higher than what you get on a savings account. And for other people, saving will only ever mean, well, that's money that gets put into a low interest savings account. And I, I am surprised, and <clears throat> I, I, I don't know why we don't do a better job of sort of delineating between those two, or at least asking people what their definition of saving for retirement is. Mm-hmm. But so, so this is, to my point, low interest rates have, at, at the very least, changed people's psychology about you know uh, what to do with with money. Mm-hmm. But to your point, yes fundamentally nothing really changes when it comes to making wise financial decisions and we're starting to see more flavors of that with what you know the the fire movement financial independence retire early so people are very aggressive in those in those camps of saying well i want to cut my expenses to the bone so that i can retire super early and have some money to to fall back on for when i stop working and uh, the the income is lower. It's the same framework. It's just really, really, really aggressive. But I think most people are going to have the more traditional sort of, okay, I'm going to have a career, work until I'm older, and then the transition to retirement will probably be a bit more diffuse than previous generations. You know, it used to be you graduate from high school, didn't even have to go to college. You get a good job. You'd be at the same company for 40 years, you get a gold watch the day you retire, and then you full stop retire with a good pension. Yeah. That was like standard. <laughs> yeah. That's not standard anymore, right? Not at Everything all. Everything about that has, has been modified. 
-hmm. So yeah, things have changed in terms of the world around us. The fundamentals, that overarching framework of what you need to do to make good financial decisions hasn't really changed that much, the, the bones of it, I mm -hmm. would say. Yeah, and I guess they're the fundamentals for a reason, right? Yeah. So, I mean, hearing that, especially from the FIRE movement, I, I think of a conversation that I had with a buddy last, uh, last week. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Last week. I think it was last week. Um, I was golfing at my home club uh, here in Guelph, and he was talking about like how he was in line at the local bank, and he overheard a conversation between two people and basically, you know, investment fees, Delta, blah, 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 and how they're, you know, becoming more transparent and itemized and so on and so forth. I, Preet, I can't tell you how proud I was to hear him say, like hear him voice his inner skeptic and be like, uh, is, is that really, are they really though? Like not to pick on the banks, but what would be your take if I were to say that there's too much trust being put into sales relationships mistaken as that of true advice? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, they're, they're looking for transactional relationships, mm -hmm. um, especially earlier on in their, in their financial trajectory, if you will. Right. At some point you reach this, this conclusion, like, okay, you know what? I need to, I need to talk to someone or I need to get a sense of where I am financially and, and what I want to achieve. And, you know, there are, uh, you can make parallels to, to fitness and any other sort of coaching endeavor, but fundamentally, you know, a good coach, um, they assess you, mm -hmm. they take a look, all right, what are the strengths and what are the weaknesses? What do we need to work on? Let's set some goals. Let's monitor towards that goal, those goals. Let's have accountability. And not everyone sort of looks at finances that way. I think a lot of people, because you're just so busy with life, you're you're stressed out with everything, your your relationships, your career, your student debt, all this stuff. You're just you're trying to juggle ten things in the air. And sometimes you just don't even have the opportunity to sit down and think about, okay, maybe I need to get someone to help me with all of this because it's all interconnected because it kind of really is. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of people just sort of, they're, they're trying to tread water constantly and hoping one day things are going to change. Some people, they say, nope, I need to take action. And again, the parallel is same thing with fitness. There's a lot of people who kind of feel like, ah, you know, I could eat better, I could work out better, whatnot, and, you know, I'll get to it. I know what to do, but I just haven't, I don't have the time or whatever. Yeah. And then there's usually something that happens that spurs a change. And it could be uh, hitting rock bottom or hitting like a low point. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it's right after the holiday season, you've eaten a lot, you haven't exercised a lot, and you're like, oh man, I need to make a change because, you know, I had to adjust a notch on my belt. There's yeah. something that sort of like happens to trigger that change, right? Um, or it is, maybe it's a windfall. Uh, maybe someone in your family has left you some money and you're like, oh, okay, well now I've got this lump sum which I've never had before. I need some kind of plan or, or what have you. So there's there's something like money in motion that spurs on a change for a lot of people that, that sometimes makes that light switch flip. Okay, so on that, what would be the, the perception at large of financial advice from the younger generation? I'm speaking to specifically the people who maybe have no awareness or you know education 
about finance mm-hmm. um, and then perhaps coming into, you know, some sort of money, or maybe they just have their little bit of their own that they're wanting to be a little bit more, um, I guess, responsible with. Sure. Uh, well, let me ask you if, if this sounds right to you, cause you look uh, quite a bit younger than myself, right? but you grew up in a generation where you saw wall street get bailed out and you've seen some big financial crises. And so you're, you're probably a natural financial system skeptic. Yep. Yeah, okay. that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that is what people have grown up in, right? Yeah. And they've seen the excesses. They've seen, uh, you know, the pop culture, you know, movies about Wall Street, um, margin call, all this stuff. And it doesn't paint the industry in a great light, does it? No. And so it feels like there is this dichotomy between Wall Street and Main Street. And so I feel that this has um, a bit of an indelible mark for a lot of people. And they have a lot more skepticism than, let's say, your grandparents did. And... In addition to all that, you've got access to so much more information uh, and opinions and, you know, on forums and, and websites and blogs, you've got great information and you've got awful information. Um, but if you, you know, spend a lot of time and do some digging, you can find some pretty eye-opening stuff out there that, that makes you think. And so a lot of people are just, you know, naturally second-guessing all the time. And so there's this, I don't know if I would say it was a, it's an anti-corporate sort of uh, bent that some people have, but they just assume that any big company is out to get you. And that's not altogether wrong. I mean, they are responsible to their shareholders first and foremost, and they're trying to make a profit. Now, ideally, they make a profit by having a happy customer for a long period of time. That would be ideal. Ideal. But you have a lot of innovators that are cropping up and saying, no, there's a better way of doing this. There's an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, especially if you take a look in Canada, uh, we have a lot of oligopolies and, you know, that is because, you know, these companies get so big and they make a lot of money and they're hard to compete against because on one hand, if you come up with something that's really cool and innovative and a threat to them, they'll buy you out just yeah. to shut you down or absorb you. Um, so it's tough, right? Mm-hmm. That being said, we are starting to see a lot of innovation and a lot of that caters to the next generation's preferences and how they just deal with the world. I mean, think about your typical interaction with a large institution and compare that to the ease of using the Netflix interface. Yep. Just works, right? Mm -hmm. The Apple ecosystem, it's like it's intuitive. It works. You want to do something, you know exactly how to do it without having to read instructions, without having to read, you know, a lot of information or having to talk to anyone. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of expect that as the default. And, uh, and a side note, you know, one of the things I've noticed from younger people working in the financial services, this is one of the biggest sources of angst that they have is like, listen, when I go home, I interact with all the services I use. Yeah. It's a dream. When I'm at work and I have to use these legacy systems that were written in languages that no one knows how to support anymore. And I've got eight different systems that can't actually talk to one another, all this stuff. They're like, it's. I want to bang my head against the desk because these systems are archaic yeah. and uh, like MS-DOS, what is that? Uh, but that's still used by, you know, some, some big companies. So uh, yeah, absolutely. The, the generational expectation of the minimum level of service and user interface is so much different than, uh, than previous generations. 
So you do, I guess, a fair amount of work in workshop setting with families um, that aren't like the average Canadian, quote unquote, mm-hmm. um, namely their children who are looking to become more familiar, more savvy, et cetera, with money. Um, so amidst this like intergenerational wealth transfer. So first of all, like, how would you explain this intergenerational wealth transfer to be? And secondly, can you talk a little bit about, you know, why the, why educating the younger generation about money is important? And I guess what's cool to them? Like, what do you guys talk most about? Yeah, there's a lot to, to sort of discuss there. Um, so by way of a little background, yes. Um, I have for a number of years been involved in these workshops for um, one financial institution. Mm -hmm. And the workshops are catered around uh, the children, so 18 to 24 years of age, of their ultra high net worth clients. So like um, eight figures and above net worth kind of thing. And it's interesting, you know, um, from the institution's perspective, they're providing a value add uh, to Mm -hmm. these, these clients because one of the biggest concerns they have is we have all this, this, uh, these resources, uh, company business, land, whatever, and a lot of that is going to go to our kids, and we just want to make sure that they are prepped for it. And there's a lot of variation in the amount of knowledge that that um, these young um, these young people come into the workshop with. Some of them are very much involved in the family business, and they are extremely financially savvy, mm-hmm. and others have had zero communication about finances within the family at all. All they know is that when they want to pay for something, they throw out, you know, this metal card <laughs> and, and everything in between. Right. Yeah. And I think from the parents perspective, they have this idea as to what they want their kids to come out of the workshops with and what they think their kids will find interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's quite a bit different from what the kids think is interesting or what they want to know about. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, that, that transference of wealth um, for these families, it's the same and it's different. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, if you were to walk into this room, you wouldn't be able to say, oh, these, these, are, these are rich kids. Yeah. You wouldn't know. They're, they're like everyone else at that age. They're all on Instagram and TikTok and all that stuff. And they're all up to speed on all the memes that I'm not yeah. <laughs> kind of thing, yeah. right? But they just have different considerations. What what mm-hmm. has changed lately, which I think is of interest, is, you know, as we've seen, uh, uh, more than one billionaire launch themselves into space lately. And as we've seen during the pandemic, uh, a lot of information about how much richer billionaires have gotten during the pandemic when a lot of people have been hurt. There is this anti-rich sentiment, which is always around, uh, mm-hmm. but has really been amplified, especially in social media. And these kids are on social media and they're, they're experiencing those, those memes. Hmm. And I tell you, it gives them a lot of anguish. Um, there's a lot of uh, uh, anxiety. There's tension because, you know, they feel that they are being painted with that same brush because they come from families of wealth. But it's not like they are not environmentally conscious, not like they don't want to... Uh, you know, help other people who mm-hmm. don't have as much. Um, so it, it's certainly one of the things that we've been talking about more lately because of that social media pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, and I'm sure no one's going to, you know, cry over their, their having to deal with issues like that because they've got, you know, lots of resources and, and live different lives and whatnot. But I'll tell you, from a mental health perspective, um, there is a burden to that for sure. Hmm. Um, some of the things that are different um, is the level of interest of between generations of your living situation. So one of the other trends that we've seen is people get married later. Uh, mm -hmm. They're much more likely to live with someone before getting married. And most people don't seem to bat an eye. Like if you're in your, I don't know, you've just graduated early 20s, you move in with someone, you may be even more likely to do that now because of financial reasons because it's just so expensive to live in a big city by yourself. Mm -hmm. So you either go from roommates to being by yourself and not having any money, or maybe you wait until you meet someone and then you move in with that significant other who may not be that significant, yep. but, but because finances is such a big part um, uh, of our stress, you'd say, all right, well, this makes sense. Yeah, it makes life what, to you a little easier. Yeah, and what you may not realize or care about um, um, is that there are property division rights and potentially spousal support or equivalent to spousal support rights mm -hmm. um, that you may be subject to. And for most people, again, you know, if there isn't a huge income uh, and asset differential, if you're both, you know, uh, students with a lot of student debt and all that, and if a relationship ends and you move out, usually you don't even think about it. Yeah. But when there are significant assets or a significant differential in income involved, that becomes an issue mm -hmm. uh, because, of course, not every relationship ends well. Yeah. Um, and if it gets potentially, you know, really bad and someone wants to be a bit vindictive, there are measures that they could take, which legally they could. And so and when it comes to those conversations, that's much more important to the parents. Mm -hmm. And the young kids are like, you know. Uh, you would think that they would be very much against even having those conversations. They're not. They realize that, yes, that is that is a consideration, mm -hmm. uh, but it still doesn't make it any easier to have. Yeah, and that's uh, that's actually reminding me of um, a story of a, a fairly prominent Canadian family as well, who's, I guess, the son of that family wasn't really that young. Uh, it was the McCain family of the, you know, the uh, French fries and stuff like that. So there was a pretty, I guess, famous example of... Um, there being like an uptual agreement upon divorce and there was a trust involved, a lot of assets or whatever. But at the end of the day, that yielded a pretty negative, I guess, result. Now, going to, I guess, your experience in the workshop setting, if you remove all of the assets and I guess the material value of, you know, these ultra high net worth families, it doesn't really sound too different from the average Canadian and their need for financial advice. Yeah, you're right. And like, like like we said, it goes back to that that overall, you know, the framework, the fundamentals mm -hmm. don't really change. Yeah. The variables change, right? Yeah. And so um, there are some potentially additional considerations, mm -hmm. but the fundamentals don't really change. Um, it's as awkward for people uh, with tons and tons of money to talk mm -hmm. about money in a relationship as it is for people who don't have tons and tons of money <laughs> that doesn't change that that human component that part you know that's that's going to be messy no matter what so speaking of resources um 
let's let's think of yourself here, Preet. If you were superimposed into someone who was, I don't know, let's say my age, right? 30 years old, so to speak. And you are in a spot in your life where you're seeking, you know that you need financial advice, or maybe you don't. How does, or I guess, what does professional value to you, Preet, in an advisory capacity look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I was 30 and looking for financial advice, um, I think the reality is there are a couple of considerations first. One is income. Mm-hmm. So we are starting to see people gravitate more towards fee-for-service advice. And so they say, listen, I want to pay for advice. I don't want someone who can only give me advice if I invest money with them. Right. Um, they want to minimize conflicts of interest. And so the challenge is, if you don't have a super high income, where are you going to find a fee-for-service advisor or money coach where you could justify the yeah. cost? And, okay, so this is going to sound self-serving. So I do believe that light financial planning is going to be something that explodes in the future. Because mm-hmm. um, right now, what we've seen over the last 10 years is we've seen this growth in fee-for-service advice. And this is, to break it down for your listeners, traditionally it used to be you would go to a financial advisor, they would sell you a mutual fund. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm really making this as, yeah. I'm with, drawing with crayons here. Um <laughs> You would go to a financial advisor, they would give you mutual funds, mutual funds charge, you know, call it 2% per year in costs. You would never sort of see uh, like a charge on a statement directly, but instead of getting say an 8% return for the year, you'd get six. Mm-hmm. And that difference would just go to the product manufacturer and the financial advisor, et cetera. So after a while, um, people started to realize costs were relatively high. 2% sounds low, but over a lifetime, it actually translates into, a in lot. many cases, it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. over an investing lifetime, right? And so like, all right, well, that sounds like there could be a better way. And many people in the industry, financial advisors, say, oh, that sounds like there could be a better way. And so you've seen, and we're skipping a lot of chapters here, yes. but, and, and you've seen a lot of, of advisors set up shops saying, all right, well, I'm going to charge just for the advice. I'm not going to have any of my compensation tied towards product whatsoever. Mm-hmm. The only quote unquote product is the financial plan or coaching that you get. And then in terms of, you know, if that plan says you should invest in, you know, something aggressive or conservative, you have to do that on your own or use a robo advisor or whatever. Yeah. And so that has been a growing model, this, this fee for service model where you pay just for the advice. And uh, when it comes to the execution, you sort of have to handle that. And figure mm-hmm. that out. And there's a lot of options for that too. Mm-hmm. Now, even though that has been exploding as a share of the market, it's tiny. It's still yes. like a sliver. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you take a look at most of the fee for service offerings, we're talking, you know, for a, a, a complete financial plan, it's pretty rare to get under four figures. So we're talking minimum a thousand bucks in most cases. Um, comprehensive plans, you know, mm-hmm. 7,500, not uncommon. So you're talking thousands and thousands of dollars for a financial plan. And the buy-in from younger people right now is low. There are some people who are going to say, yes, I need that, can't afford it yet. What are my other options? Yeah. Uh, but the vast majority of people are going to say, well, why would I do that? You know, why would I do that when I can just sort of go with any of these other traditional channels? It doesn't feel like I'm paying a lot of money and I'm getting, you know, some, some attention. Mm-hmm. And so... 
if you don't have a lot of income or assets, you don't have a lot of options right now in terms of comprehensive planning. And when I say comprehensive, I mean more holistic, really. Because when you're younger, you don't really have a complicated situation. And that's that's the problem, right? You're like, I don't need to spend thousands of dollars, but I know I have a relatively standard financial situation as a young person, but I still don't know what I'm doing. I need some guidance. And so light planning um, is something that I think could potentially address this really well because you basically are relegated to do everything you're on your own and figure it out or spend in your mind what feels like a huge amount of money to pay for a big financial plan and you feel you don't really need that or, or want to go through that experience as a younger person. So there's a big gap in the market uh, for sure. And I am I actually am going to push you to, to speak to your heart's content because I am a big fan of what you created at Money Gap. So please like put that out on the table um, for, you know, people to listen to, because I do, I'm kind of in the same boat here where I do believe that there is a disconnect, especially in the fee for service model versus AUM and just this like ability to pay for, um, I guess a service that's very, in my opinion, necessary. Yeah. So let me give you sort of like the, the landscape back when I was still a financial advisor. Um, it was essentially, you know, you get into the industry and when you start in the industry as a financial advisor, you're no good mm-hmm. um, because the level of training required to get in is super low. Um, and over time, I'm not saying that there aren't any great financial advisors. Far from it. There are some amazing financial advisors out there. I'm just saying when people start, they're generally, the bar is super, super low. Yep. Um, and if you are good, then you start to start putting in these... Um, sort of hurdles for what type of client you will take on. When you first start, the average financial will take anything with a heartbeat, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yep. And eventually, if you are really good and you develop a process and you're good at what you're doing, you say, all right, well, now I'm not going to take anyone on that doesn't have 50 grand. And then it gets up to 100 grand. Then it's 250, 500. Now it's a million. Yeah. And there are a lot of advisory advisors and advisory teams that, you know, their minimums are a million, two million bucks. And they're really good, mm-hmm. right? But if you aren't there yet in terms of assets, you won't get access to you know that 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 pool of deeply talented financial advisors. Yeah. Again, I'm not saying that there aren't any good financial advisors that deal with people under 100 grand. I'm just saying it's harder to figure that out as a consumer. Oh, I'd almost say it's impossible at some points. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I was being very charitable. (laughs) Yeah. That's okay. I'll Um, be that voice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, um, you know, the the other avenue you have is fee-for-service where you pay out of pocket, you write a check, send an e-transfer, whatever, for thousands of dollars and you get comprehensive planning. Mm -hmm. Um, And you don't need to have a lot of assets. But are you going to have the ability to cut a $5,000 check when you don't have a lot of assets? Of course not. Right. <laughs> By very definition, you don't yep. have the money to spend. Yeah. Um, there are some people, young young uh, professionals who are making good money. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have lots of debt. They have no assets. And they may be willing to pay because they see the value in professional services because they are a professional. For them, yeah. okay. But you're only catering to the people who already have. Yep. And what I would argue is... There are so many more people 
in a category where the potential to change their financial life is so huge and we're not getting the advice that they need mm -hmm. when they need it. The earlier they can get this, you know, simple, holistic advice to uh, whether it's, you know, pay down your credit card debts, anything that's yep. double digit interest rate to set up a savings plan in the first place, even if it's 50 bucks a month. Um, to get uh, powers of attorney, to get wills, life insurance if you have, you know, dependents, all that stuff, mm -hmm. basic stuff. Mm -hmm. um, they're not getting that advice uh, very well or very easily. And they represent the bulk of financial consumers. Yeah, big time. And I, one thing that I hear very often is, or I guess often enough, is for people who are convinced that fee-for-service is the way to go, they have a difficult time understanding the need for ongoing service as opposed mm. to just a standalone plan. So can you like maybe just touch on that a little bit? Sure, yeah. So uh, people don't like to pay money for things, period, right? <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> yeah. And so you have to sort of establish that there is going to be value if you're going to spend money. Yeah. And so for that initial plan, you might be thinking, okay, so this is all I need. I just need to follow this, this prescription and I'm good. I don't need to pay on an ongoing basis for more because I've got it all. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, you know, a lot of financial planning is front end loaded, right? There's a lot of upfront work in terms of, all right, well, let's figure out what you have. Let's figure out what your goals are and let's, you know, create a plan to get you from A to B. Let's see what risks you have. Let's see how we can mitigate them. So there's a lot of upfront work that definitely does need to be done. And then after that, it doesn't have to be quite so intensive unless there's some big money moment happening yeah. in life. And it's that's usually when people start to think about, uh, like I said, you know, um, taking more control or, or getting some advice on how to manage their affairs, some kind of money milestone, whether it's, um, you know, selling a business, starting a business, mm -hmm. receiving an inheritance, um, maybe a big job, whatever it is. It's usually yeah. something that, that triggers that. Mm -hmm. But if nothing really changes between those milestones, you're thinking, well, do I really need to go back? It's the accountability. And so the ongoing costs of ongoing financial planning, they don't have to be as significant, right? Mm -hmm. So there's usually a drop-off in the cost. There can be a retainer model that I think is, is the way to go for a lot of people. And that is having someone that can review things for you. Because sometimes, you know, you need a little bit more of a push. It's very easy to say, have a plan written up. You, you do everything you need to do in the first year, maybe the first two years, and then you get a little bit complacent with your financial situation. And that is probably more true the better you, you are doing in terms of income and asset growth. Yep. Because the stakes aren't that high. You're like, ah, I won, or I'm doing well, I'm headed in the right direction, everything's great. Yep. But that is also where you could have maybe someone push you a little bit more. Um, and you know who's really good who, you know who's the best at budgeting? People who don't have a lot of money because you have to be good, Yeah. right? But once yeah. you have a significant income increase, the pressure's off, yeah. right? And you're not going to push yourself as well as someone third party could potentially do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just about to say that um, at least the people who I've come across here who earn tremendous amounts of money, like they take sometimes tremendous risk and offset it with the mindset thinking that, 
oh, well, I can experience 100% loss because I make up so much money, I can make up for it in the long run. Preet, as we wind down here, having worked with your fair share of young people, being a financial advisor in past, and now as you kind of embark into this new, I guess, like higher education pathway to, I guess, really defining better or understanding better the value of financial advice, what are you most hopeful for as the next generation forms a bigger presence at this like proverbial table? Well, I'll double down on the light planning. So I think, you know, we've seen this growth of robo advice, Mm -hmm. which is really robo investment execution and asset allocation, which is great, but it's the tip of the iceberg, really. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to, to see pushes into robo-planning because it is very difficult, even for you know a lot of people who believe in you know planning-only advice mm-hmm. uh, and only charging for planning, it's very difficult for them to either justify or to take on light planning clients as well. Right. And that's because, you know, if you think of it from just like a human perspective, when you're dealing with a complex situation and you're problem solving, um, you know, it, it, you want to spend more time finding more clients like that because you mm-hmm. work with a fewer situations with, you know, um, a certain am- amount of income per, per plan. Mm-hmm. Light planning only works in a high volume sort of way. Yes. Right? So anytime you can think high volume, you think automation. Mm-hmm. And that's why you will start to see some type of self-serve robo-planning model. If you want to engage people with planning, you have to make it like it's not getting a root canal. Yes. Um, like right now, you show people a traditional financial plan, it's a sea of tables and numbers, right? And yeah. as nerdy as we like to be with, with that kind of stuff, the average person does not really care about seeing that. Yeah, not a chance. And you know, I informally asked a bunch of people, how many times have you read your financial plan, if they had one? And the average was less than one because very few people actually read those comprehensive financial plans cover to cover, and no one reads it twice, right? And so they're not engaged with that. What they really are saying is, listen, I trust you, and I have this relationship with you, and if I have a question, I know I can go to you. So there's that trust that they've delegated to this professional. but again, you can't really build a model to scale like that for the masses. And so this is where light planning will come in. Mm-hmm. And you have to make it more engaging because of the Netflix effect, yeah. right? Uh, and the Apple ecosystem, things need to be beautiful. So it's like, all right, I just want to know, am I doing okay compared to people like me? Yeah, that's great. I, I, I do agree that, um, yeah, it's you automatically make the connection. So. Mm-hmm. I think that um, at least from my end, I have a difficult time effectively communicating to people the need for like ongoing planning, as opposed to just what do I need to do right now to scratch my itch. Mm -hmm. And I think that what you've done is, is something that's really effective, actually. And especially for that segment who kind of doesn't really have anywhere to go. Right. And this just, I think this conversation in, in, more ways than one has just kind of come full circle and know and seeing how, like how segmented the industry is. And I guess the disconnect between someone from the professional side of finance versus 
the people from the other end of the table. Is there anything else that you'd like to you know, get out there? Um, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll just say um, communication about finances is really important. Um, and um, maybe this will help you out as well. But, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, um, share it with people. And let's let's continue to destigmatize conversations about money, mm-hmm. because right now there's there's a great personal finance community and they share and they're very open and that's great, but it's a minority of the population, mm-hmm. right? And so, talking about money, learning about money, being able to communicate with your partner about money, is critical. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're listening to this podcast and you know you have a significant other. Uh, a partner, um, encourage them as well to, you know, learn the basics, maybe listen to this podcast on their own as well. Um, because one of the other things that um, I think is is problematic is when there's a lopsided either responsibility or knowledge in a relationship when it comes to finances. Agreed. And I'm not saying that you both need to figure it all out, but you both have to be at the table. Um, and so increasing communication, um, exposure to podcasts and content like this is great. So share the podcast. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for the plug, Preet. Um, yeah. Thanks for hopping on here and, uh, yeah, I'll have to have you on again to, to dig a little bit deeper into this stuff, but I think this is a great starting point. I'd love to be back anytime, Tim. For more information about our guests, please visit the show notes. Until next time, we wish you luck in your own journey and recognizing the things that matter to you.